Hi, I'm Richard Niles, drowning in tears of self-pity as I wave goodbye to the last in the current series of The Arrangers. But let's not curse the darkness, because tonight we're going to light one big funky mother of a candle. Our unique hero went from the ghetto to the finest hotels, from sideman to superstar, from the cat house to the white house. In this evening's unstoppable success story, a man begins as a humble trumpet player, but his stratospheric rise takes him through arranging, composing, scoring TV and movie soundtracks, producing megastars selling 60 million records, publishing music, books, and magazines, running record companies, and producing movies. He is now a widescreen institution of American popular music and media, from swing to bebop, R&B to rock and pop, soul and hip-hop. This guy has been there, done it, and got the silk t-shirt. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Quincy Delight Jones. almost feel like no matter what setting you put him in, he would shine. You know, he would just come up with just the right sound and just the right setting for a particular voice. I think he's a huge inspiration. I refer to him as a a multimedia ship of state. Uh, If it has to do with entertainment, in some way or another, Quincy Jones will find a way to be there. Nosy, very interested in what was going on, and he still is. He will always ask questions. His success is due to his nosiness. Quincy's middle name is Delight. He is truly a delightful man. And I think he may today be the wealthiest jazz musician on the planet. He knows how to get things done. And he knows how to do it. I think he has been a real force in just being able to do so many things at the same time, but do them all so magnificently. The truth is, you know, he's a, he's a wonder. You can't get in the studio and just wait for some magic to happen. You have to make almost make lightning strike. But I always have a, uh, an expression, uh, let's leave a little room for God to walk through the room. And every time he sees Quincy Jones, God seems to get his walking shoes on. Quincy's life story, recently revealed in a brutally honest autobiography, shows how much music can mean to a man and how much a man can mean to music. It all began on the 14th of March, 1933, when Quincy came into the world in a poor Chicago neighborhood. Running around with street gangs and eating whatever he could get his hands on, Quincy's was a tough childhood, made all the more so by his mother's illness, a severe psychiatric disorder that eventually saw her institutionalized. Quincy's father remarried and the family wound up in Seattle, where Quincy was to make possibly the greatest discovery of his life.
around the corner from where we lived was a armory where all the bands played, you know, Earl Hines, Lunsford, and everything. So, you know, you're never sure where the influences come from because nobody in my family is into music. You know. I just remember those the, the nights uh, standing in front of a, a Woody Herman's band with uh, Stan Getz and the Four Brothers, you know, with the suede shoes on. At 13, I knew that I would be in music all my life. I could just feel it. Having that kind of vision about your future at the age of 13 is a mark of genius. It also exemplifies the kind of single-minded confidence and focus you need to achieve success. As Quincy said, you consider the whole world as part of your dream and conveniently turn off what's uncomfortable and you ignore it. But for Quincy, music was his savior, perhaps filling the gaping hole in his soul caused by the lack of a maternal influence. Quincy went as far as to say that had he grown up in a well-adjusted family, he might not have become a musician. Music was something beautiful that took me away from it all. One good thing about small town guys, you know, they a big fish on little 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 beaches and all so they get you know they get a little cocky you know they get a chance to get cocky you need to get cocky you know to feel your oats once in a while because there's always somebody that's going to put you back in your place anyway in seattle we felt between ray charles's little band and, and our little band uh, we had every job in town you know we could do everything we did comedy we could dance we had singing groups we could play and so it was, it was a lot of fun. And we played the white clubs from 7 to 10. We had to play Room Full of Roses and Cup Mutes for dinner dancing at the tennis club, Seattle Tennis Club, and Shottishes and all those things, and our little white cardigans and black tie. Then next we'd go to the black clubs, the, you know, the, the black and tan and the rocking chair and the Washington Educational and Social Club, and play rhythm and blues all night long, and strippers. And, and then at 2 o'clock in the morning, all of the musicians that played these other jobs previously would meet at the Elks Club down on Jackson Street, and Ray Charles and everybody would come and tear all their ties off, and we'd play bebop for nothing. You know, that was our real love, you know. And then the next step from there was uh, I got a scholarship to Berkeley, which is the Schillinger House of Music in Boston. And the big thing when you're that young is to get away from home. And so I got that scholarship, and from there, I heard from Lionel Hampton to join his band, because when I was 15, he wanted me to join the band, but his wife said I was too young and, and put me off the bus, you know. So uh, at 18, he said, okay, now we can do it. And so I, I left and went with his band. I said, I'll be back, but I never went back. Brad Bigelow curates the excellent website SpaceAgePop.com. He got his start in the late era of the big bands, which was really the worst time to be doing that sort of thing. So he started out, came out of high school playing the trumpet, worked a little bit with the, the great trumpeter Clark Terry, 
then joined Lionel Hampton uh, in around 50-51. And uh, like many of the Rangers that you talk about in this series, he was a uh, sideman who came out uh, to show that he had a talent for arranging. And uh, any band leader worth his salt recognized that an arranger was a tremendous asset in terms of creating material and keeping uh, the content fresh. And then from there, really pretty quickly, he became uh, a successful, at least uh, able to make his way through the business by working with a variety of other acts. With Quincy Jones, here was this uh, remarkable young musician, trumpet player coming into Lionel Hampton's band and looking around and seeing, gee, there's you know, this young Clifford Brown playing trumpet and recognizing Clifford Brown's genius, getting a lot of experience from Lionel Hampton. And I think Quincy had a drive to do something more than just play the trumpet. Considering his incredible career, Quincy and his bank manager must be awfully glad that he didn't just stick to playing the trumpet. Quincy had been studying arranging, getting a lot of tips from his friend Ray Charles on how to voice for brass. When Lionel Hampton finally invited him to New York, Quincy took not just his instrument, but lots of sharpened pencils and manuscript paper. By the um, mid-50s, he had resettled in New York, and everybody was using him. Stephanie stein Kreese is a music journalist and author of Gil Evans, Out of the Cool. As a young arranger, he had a real feel for just putting together small groups of instruments that were very influenced by the Miles Davis Nonette, using textures in a way that the beboppers didn't, you know, which had, the beboppers had, you know, for the most part, things had become small groups of instrument, everybody's playing a solo, then you go back to the theme. I think Quincy really advanced the idea of small band arranging in the 50s, and he worked with people like Clifford Brown, Art Farmer, Clark Terry, and just would give things a twist, but still leave plenty of room for the improviser. He started doing some charts for Basie, and I think just kind of polishing what we might even think of as a New York sound, you know, very smooth, a lot of textural use of the low brass, the use of flute in a jazz setting, the use of different instruments in a jazz setting. I think Quincy was really great at that. Some of the people that he worked with, you, you feel like had to have inspired him. He was a guy on the scene. So he joined Dizzy Gillespie's fantastic band in that State Department tour that took off in 1956. Everyone was in that band. And I think many people had thought of Dizzy, various versions of Dizzy's big band as like an incubator. You know, it was an incubator for Gil Evans even in the late 40s in New York. People went to hear their band, Dizzy's band, and their jaws dropped. The way Dizzy combined really complex music, really advanced harmonies, but with a real driving sense of percussion and a real playful use of the way the soloist and the band could interact. I think, I think all these guys listen to, to each other a whole lot. One of his hallmarks certainly is his subtlety and finesse. Uh, he's probably one of the most finesseful men uh, that's ever walked. If you look at uh, 
all of his accomplishments throughout his career, what you do not see is Quincy Jones pushed up front as an in-your-face kind of personality. He's very tasteful, very much in the background, uh, very sensitive to what uh, the recording is really uh, aimed for. And when you're backing a singer, you don't want to have people listening to the record and say, what great backgrounds those are. Uh, the point is to is to showcase the singer. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And let me see what spring is like on a Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words. Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song People forget that swing era was instrumentalist-driven. The singers were the accoutrements, you know. They'd have uh, Joe Stafford and Paul and the Pied Pipers and Sinatra sitting on some chairs in front of the band. And the band would play. Tommy Darcy would play a whole solo. They'd do a little modulation and then have sax ensemble or something like that and then modulate again. And then when they got tired of playing, they'd get Frank and the Pied Pipers to get up and sing, grab your coat and grab your hat or something. Relief for the instrumentalists. So all of the singers would listen to inst great instrumentalists play every night. So Ella, Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, and all those people that came out of big bands, they were basically driven by instrumentalists and they sang like instrumentalists. They couldn't get out there and just sing a song straight up and down. They sang like a tenor player or like Lester Young, you know. They held back on the time and they had tremendous style. And I think that's what's so enchanting about Sinatra, you know. He's, he's like a very hip jazz trumpet player, jazz tenor player. I mean, he's one of my favorite singers. Conductor and arranger Bobby Tucker is a longtime friend of Quincy Jones. That's what makes him so great. He has so many areas that he can clue in the subject, the person that's doing it, and uh, his own particular touch is, uh, is different from... Uh, like Nelson Riddle had a certain... Billy May has a certain... Robert Farnan. These are all great arrangers, and they, uh, they have a, a way of... Uh, inserting their touch, which is recognizable. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words... Quincy, he's got uh, his own which is commercial, it's musical, any way you can think of it, it's, uh, it's, it's Quincy. You In the late 50s, Billy Eckstein invited Quincy to come and work for him in Paris, and it was there that he studied with the legendary composer-teacher Nadia Boulanger. Her students included Copland, Stravinsky, Ravel, Bernstein, Glass, the top cats in legitimate composition. For Quincy, it was the chance of a lifetime. Joining Quincy in Madame Boulanger's class one day was friend, arranger, and conductor Bobby Tucker, 
a self-confessed raggedy-ass mofo from Morristown, New Jersey, who couldn't quite believe he was sitting in front of the greatest teacher of 20th century composition. She was probably, the, in his mind, the greatest modern musician or musician living. She agreed to take him on as a student. During the class, she, she uh, made an issue of, uh, they were doing a Firebird Suite, and uh, she played a record of the Firebird, and she had part of the kids uh, to tap out the rhythms of the first violins and the second violins, which was, uh, when, when she put the record on, it was a nightmare, nothing. So she said, uh, no, no, no. And she went to the piano, and, and this is a woman in 84, and she played like a, a, a very young genius. When someone had me mentioned that, but uh, Madame Bollinger, uh, it says a retard. She says, no, no retard. Javinsky himself, he told me, no retard. <laughs> I remember Nadia Boulanger always used to tell me that you have no freedom until you totally restrict yourself. And I hated the idea that that might be true, but it is. And she said, until you totally restrict your direction and boundaries, you don't have any freedom. Because you say you can do anything. When you can do anything, you can't do nothing, really. So once you say a piece is going to be five minutes long, and one minute will be with five instruments, and it will go into 15 instruments, and it will be a little bit faster, etc. This will be thicker, and so forth. And all the specifics, that's when you start to give yourself the freedom. It took me a long time to accept that, though, as a jazz musician. But she's right. She knew it was too late to put a net over me. Because, you know, I've been working in nightclubs since I was 13 and been all over the road, all over the world, and listened to all kinds of music. And the die was cast, really. And uh, most of her students were disciples from England, from France, all over the place. The disciples, like every word she said, we do exactly that. And we had to find a, another kind of working relationship, which is based on having one foot in another culture. And I used to play Charlie Parker records for her. She didn't understand it. And I used to have lessons that were like late at, at when we went to Fontainebleau. And she used to like canned peaches and we'd have canned peaches and wine. And we'd talk about Charlie Parker. She says, but if it's improvised, that means sometimes it's going to be very, very good, but you can't depend on that. Sometimes it's going to be very, very bad. But I said, but that, Madame Boulanger, that's what's nice about it. <laughs> it changes, you know. And she couldn't handle that theory at all. She says, I'm too old for that. She said, she always did that. You know, for other French do that, they spit on you. Successfully dodging Madame Boulanger's spray, and armed with his fresh European compositional skills, he became the first black head of A&R at Mercury Records. The next mountain Quincy decided to conquer was the lucrative world of film and television. 
Up until then, this was an exclusively white field for people like Elmer Bernstein and Henry Mancini. Quincy recalled later that not even the kitchen hands at Universal had black skin. Stephanie stein Kreese is a music journalist and author of Gil Evans, Out of the Cool. Only Benny Carter had had broken the ice in Hollywood in terms of being an arranger and a composer for film music and TV. And Quincy Jones, his first big film scoring job was with The Porn Broker and then followed with films for Sidney Poitier, The Slender Thread, then in Cold Blood, In the Heat of the Night, and of course the film he helped produce, um, The Color Purple. You know, um, I think he has been a real force in just being able to do so many things at the same time, but do them all so magnificently. A lot of directors like to manipulate the emotion that's already there, and they boost it. I used to call it emotion lotion, <laughs> because they take an emotion that, that, that is pretty obvious in the film, and then they push it even more because they kick it you know, with music, you know, that, that, that makes sure you don't miss it. And I guess there's a time for that, but a, a whole movie of that really bothers me a lot. Andrew Homsey is professor of music at Concordia University, Montreal. Once he had proven success as a band leader and an arranger, he, he wanted to move on. I, I think he must have felt driven to move on to something else and to become a producer. This represented uh, uh, for Quincy Jones as a chance to move in to the popular music that was coming up in the um, in the in the in the 70s, and it's interesting because a good friend of mine played in that band, tenor saxophonist named Ernie Krivda. Ernie Krivda was from Cleveland, and Ernie had gone to uh, Los Angeles, and he got onto the Quincy Jones band, and he would talk about. Uh, he said Quincy had all these sounds in his head. And he wanted to unite the jazz musicians with the pop musicians. And, and he said that often when they would play Killer Joe, you could, you could feel the conflict because uh, the jazz musicians were uncomfortable with the, the rock aspects of what Quincy was introducing to the music. And the, uh, the rock musicians that were on the band were uncomfortable with the jazz aspects. But I think that, uh, that Quincy was very successful, particularly in... Uh, in Killer Joe of, uh, of showing how these things could be united and I think is, is a marvelous arrangement. If were to list all the stars Quincy Jones has produced, it would take up this entire program. Quincy's unique ability to work intimately with so many different personalities is based on his ability to respect and learn from each of them. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. 
It's always a joy for me because what number one, I take each one individually, and I don't want to compare. You can't compare them because they're all so different, totally unique, unique, unique souls that have different life experiences, different vocal cards, and different ways, points of view in life, and they're all like these beautiful flowers that are so different. You know, you take Ella and Sarah and Dinah and Roberta Flack and, and Valerie Simpson and Shaka and Patty Austin and Saida Garrett and Barbara Streisand, you know, they all Peggy Lee, I work with all of them, and, and Sinatra, Paul Simon, Ray Charles, Billy Eckstein, you know, it's, it's just endless and it's a, it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling because they're all so personal. You know, I take it very seriously, you know, I don't take it for granted ever, you know, because when they come in that studio, they're coming in with their heart and soul. It's not like bringing over a pastrami sandwich, you know. They're bringing their soul with them to really give up everything and really put it into their work when they do it. Like Ella and everybody else, they come in there to really lay their butt on the line, you know. And they have to, you have to trust and respect each other to uh, make sure that that, that that trust is not uh, abused. And so we all must lend a helping In 1984, Quincy was in New York when he took a call from Lionel Richie saying that Harry Belafonte wanted America to do something for the millions of people starving to death in Ethiopia. Quincy, like a Pied Piper of superstardom, got together a dazzling array of talent, including Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Ray Charles, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, and of course, the co-writers of the song Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson. Quincy asked each and every one of them to check their egos at the door of the recording studio. We Are the World, USA for Africa, became another Quincy-inspired seminal moment in the history of American music, going on to win the Grammy for Record of the Year. He's won 26 so far. More than anyone else, Quincy Jones is responsible for bringing black music to a mass audience, and a lot of artists owe their current financial success to the groundbreaking work of his incredible career. My thanks to musician, arranger, and Q's friend, Bobby Tucker, to writer Stephanie Steinkreese, to music professor Andrew Homsey, and to Space Age Pop's webmaster, the finesseful Brad Bigelow. Seeing as this is the last in the series, I'd also like to thank our talented man on the mixing desk, Graham Knowles, for making my voice sound so sexy, and my producer, Elizabeth Clark, for reminding me that I'm not. But for now, I'm Richard Niles being forced at gunpoint out of the BBC studios, hoping you'll remember me every time you hear the wonderful music of The Arrangers. Radio Richard!